Welcome. You're listening to Latin Waves with your hosts, Sylvia and Stuart Richardson. Latin Waves is more than just hot rhythms. This is a show about community, about creating a culture that is inclusive and based on fairness. Because everyone deserves dignity, respect, and has something to contribute. A new world is possible, and it all starts with us. I'm delighted this morning to be joined by Robin Hanel. He's an economist and a prolific author. His latest book, Of the People, By the People, The Case for a Participatory Economy, is a primer for workers, for people who want to understand the economic system. We are so delighted to have you on our show. Thank you for joining us. It's great to be with you again, Sylvia. So neoliberalism has become this wave that has privatized all our, our all the things that we worked so hard to build in the 20th century, and uh, and now we're facing a, a time where people um, are so polarized. So I wonder if we could begin our conversation by talking first about the impact this way that we feel isolated and uncared for by our governments led to perhaps the election of Donald Trump and what will be the right response now that we have so-called elected a democratic government? There was a time in the middle of the 20th century, particularly in some European countries, some Northern European countries, the Scandinavian countries, but also in the United States, you know, with the Roosevelt administration and the New Deal, um, and things like Social Security, there was a time when capitalism was somewhat tamed. People came to think, well, maybe actually we can sort of build middle-class societies. And what we've experienced now is basically a rollback of all of that. And it's been going on for 40 years. And the easiest way to see it is just to see what has happened to income distribution. And when income distribution flows all the way up to the top and it leaves, you know, the bottom 90% worse off than their parents were, now it's starting to be worse off than their grandparents were. Well, this gives rise to political responses and reactions. People are hurting and people are angry. And in the United States, people came to not trust that there was any political party, including the Democrats. The, Dem the Democrats were not successfully fighting, you know, to protect people's economic interests. And what we, what we saw in the United States was, you know, the Republican Party um, nominated somebody who really had fascist tendencies and fascist aspirations. And that put all progressives um, in a position in the United States where we had to figure out, well, how do you respond to that? Um, how do moderate Democrats and progressive Democrats and people to the left of them of progress? How do we essentially respond to the to the present danger of incipient fascism in the United States? And that's what Trump clearly had become. And my own sense is we just dodged a bullet. We very narrowly dodged a bullet. Seven million people, you know, more people did not vote for him than voted for him. That's a clear indication you know, that the majority of the population did not support Trump and Trumpism. On the other hand, we have this crazy electoral college system so that it was actually just a very close call. In the end, there's only 10 states that matter in our electoral college system. And there were close calls in Georgia, in Pennsylvania. Well, fortunately, it came out the right way. But the underlying conditions that gave rise to all that are still very much here. That's now the danger ahead of us. We have dodged one bullet. 
the amount of suffering and the amount of anger and the amount of division in the country is as great as it was before the election. And the question is whether or not progressives can press the Biden administration to actually solve some of the serious problems that have gone unresolved, have been aggravated, you know, and gotten worse over the previous decades. And whether we can do that in time to prevent climate change, because that clock doesn't stop. The carbon in the atmosphere clock isn't stopping. We haven't done anything about it that's significant. And while we're trying to solve all our other problems, our income distribution problems, our race problems, our gender problems, our sort of inability to even speak with one another anymore in terms of sort of living in different information universes, you know, while, while we are all wrapped up in those problems, the climate change clock keeps ticking. And we'll see. The Biden administration, in my view, they've made a lot of good noise so far. I'm seeing things that are better than I expected to come out of, you know, somebody who's been a mainstream centrist Democratic politician all his life. Um, I think that he and the people around him have learned some of the lessons from the Obama administration about, you know, you have to be bolder. You have to actually solve problems. And I think they've also learned that you can't rely on the Republican Party, you know, to be anything other than a scorched earth obstructionist party. Now, I have to say from a Latin American perspective, one of the things the most leftists in Latin America will tell you is that Trump didn't invade or, you know, start any wars. On the other hand, you know, it's business as usual in terms of soft coups. You know, we're in the era of soft coup where in the past you would see American troops descend among small countries like El Salvador. You would see bombs dropping on people. This era of soft coups, it involves an information warfare. In an information warfare where, you know, people in Venezuela are constantly being told your president is not the legitimate president. You know, they elected, they have gone to elections several times and time and time again the US and Canada um, you know, have played a complicitor role in this and sometimes a leading role to try to enact the coup, have undermined the will of the people. So can we talk a little bit about the the significance of this? Because without a proper example of what, you know, a society without capitalism, a society that's not so uh, intentional about upholding the rights of capital and the, the capital elitist, right? Because it's not... The rest of the people have a tiny bit access if that, but the majority are left out, as you point out. I, I would like to talk a little bit about the importance of creating um, solidarity movements among the working class, at recognizing that the need to create a different vision of our society is as essential as, you know, how do we, you know, implement a, a redistribution of wealth in our countries? Let me say one thing about Latin America, since you, you, you talked about it. And I think you said something very, very insightful, which is, you know, from the Latin American point of view, was the, were the four years of Trump really any different than had they been four years of, of Hillary Clinton, who, as Secretary of State, had actively supported the right wing, you know, coup in Honduras, for example. Were the four years of Trump really for Latin American governments and movements and, progress, and, and, and progressive Latin American, you know, those in, in Latin America who want progressive change there, 
were they any different than 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 they had been under Obama? And the sad truth is that this has been, you know, a monumental failure of the Democratic Party. The, the Democratic Party has failed to implement what, at one point in the 20th century, Franklin Roosevelt called the good neighbor policy to our good neighbors to the south. Um, it really has made remarkably little difference. Certainly, the Trump administration did everything it could to overthrow the Venezuelan government, to starve them out. They supported the coup attempt. It just didn't work. The same thing's true in Bolivia. The Trump administration was was very heavy-handed in how it handled the Bolivia situation. So it's not that Latin America does better under a Republican or you know under Republicans than under Democrats. The sad truth is they don't do much worse. That is a battle that will have to be waged, whether or not progressives can move the Democratic Party in a direction um, where the United States no longer is the opponent of progressive reform, um, including, you know, reform that's more than progressive, that's, you know, reaching in the direction of some sort of desirable socialism. There's just no reason the United States needs to be the enemy of all that. Um, but that's a long, long battle. You know, as a people, we often want to understand, but I think it's also important to have a vision of how to create what we're trying to bring you know, to, to life. So if we want a society that has an economic system, and economic systems can be in many forms, not just a capitalist system, you know, what are some of the key ingredients, you know, that need to be included when it comes to planning an economy that meets the needs of the majority, an economy that has um, a way to create infrastructure that supports health, education, all the things that we're seeing right now being challenged in the midst of pandemic, we find that because of neoliberalism, our hospitals, our, you know, our, our healthcare staff are not prepared and people are dying. And so how do we create a system that will serve all of us? And what are some of those ingredients that we must absolutely insist upon having in our economic system? I think basically it is a long battle and it's basically two kinds of things that you're constantly working on. One is you're working on any number of economic reforms. We clearly need to reform the medical, medical care system here in the United States. You and Canada are in much better shape than we are. That's a battle that has to be waged. That's a battle that has to be won. Right now, pushing the Biden administration to sort of not only protect Obamacare, but to basically take that next step that makes it sensible and work better. Those kinds of things. Um, $15 minimum wage. We're going to fight for that now because it's just time has come. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, it's an absolute necessity um, to prevent people from just being, you know, working away at six or seven dollars an hour, you know, 40 hour plus weeks, and they're going to be going bankrupt while they're doing it. Um, that kind of nonsense. So we have to fight. I call them sort of, I call them reform campaigns. And we have to have economic reform movements that battle those campaigns and win those. We have to start winning those campaigns again. Um, at the same time, I think, and there is, there, there, there is movement in this direction also, we have to start creating um, what I call the economics of cooperation in the here and now. We have to found co-ops. Um, there are all sorts of things that um, community land trusts, 
I, I want to tell you about something that I became very interested in Canada because of the pandemic. The government instituted a relief plan. And so uh, people who were working the previous years were entitled to a basic amount of money to help them survive the pandemic. And yes. to me, this this speaks to the necessity for a universal base of income. We have to also consider, okay, so... If there is a necessity to, you know, to be able to meet your basic needs in order to be a full functioning member of society, to be engaged creatively, politically, uh, to be able to participate productively in a society, then it should follow that having a basic income where everybody can have at least access to shelter, food, uh, health, uh, would be a necessity that we must meet. How do we go about you know, not just settling for crumbs, you know, for promises, but actually mobilizing our political systems, our government and our elected people in our communities to advocate, to create that very basic, you know, uh, safety net for all people. Well, I think, I think a universal basic income is a new economic reform campaign whose time has come in the 21st century. Um, certain things, I mean, re-empowering unions um, is going to be necessary. Um, and unions are going to also have to sort of take more interest in controlling work process, not just wages and benefits. Um, but the universal basic income, I think, is an idea. It's a, that's one economic reform campaign whose time has come. Um, and, well, Andrew Yang, we had a candidate who a not part of the political punditry candidate in the Democratic presidential primaries um, who brought that issue, you know, to those debates. You can argue that economic productivity has continued to increase. Now, 99% of us have not enjoyed the benefits of that. Economic productivity has continued to increase. It's that all of that has flowed to the very, very, very top of the income bracket and the wealth bracket. Um, but because it's increased, it means we now do live in economies in Canada, in the United States, in Europe. We live in economies where the level of productivity is sufficiently high that there is no reason whatsoever that we cannot guarantee a universal basic income for absolutely everybody. And that that would solve a host of problems that things like Social Security and welfare, you know, welfare programs, et cetera, were designed to solve in the past. That's an idea whose time has come. Um, if you want capitalism in the 21st century to be even moderately sensible, um, well, then it should be a capitalism that has a UBI. I also want to talk a little bit about public banking because the biggest um, boogeyman we face you know, in society is that we're told, oh, if the government were to do something like that, inflation will go off the roof and we couldn't handle inflation. Can we talk a little bit about the relationship between how how banking works and what public banking might possibly yeah, be able to do for us. There's no evidence in capitalism that when the banking system um, became more publicly owned or more regulated um, rather than more private and less regulated, that inflation, you know, that, that, that inflation accompanied that. There's no evidence of that at all. There's a lot of things you can say about reforming the financial sector. And the financial sector is 
clearly one of the sectors of the economy that is most out of whack, most dysfunctional, and something seriously needs to happen in order for it to become, you know, in order for us to have something that's not a financialized neoliberal capitalist system that doesn't serve the interests of the vast majority. Whether or not it is just good old financial and banking regulation of the kind that, for example, somebody like Elizabeth Warren knows how to do and has proposed and would bring, you know, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party and, and, and Elizabeth Warren would bring, you know, sensible financial reform um, and regulation to the United States. And it would be an, an incredible improvement. To what extent we also want to have public banking rather than not have a private banking sector, I would support that fully. Um, on the other hand, in terms of how much good can you get done, how quickly, um, there's a lot that can be done with just good old financial regulation. That the financial industry basically managed to get itself out from under um, to the detriment of all of us. One of the things that I often think about and um, is how people, you know, we we can imagine amazing things. We can work together to create incredible things. And we see that when things happen, you know, like when um, the economy of Argentina was completely shut down by the <laughs> by the traders in the in, in the US, you know, by all these Ponzi schemes and ways that they have to shut down entire economies in other countries. Um, the people went together and, and got together and organized themselves in different ways and survive and so we're always in this mode of survival and and I'm wondering you know how do you see our relationship with our solidarity movements with Latin America for instance and perhaps other areas of the world in not only reigniting our imagination of what can be possible but why it's important to to protect and to to protect the workers who are fighting who literally with their lives to create a different society to you know to eradicate neoliberalism and in and not just to transform it and tame it, but to really change our society into a, a more socialist society, a society that is for the people, by the people, and that can meet the needs of all people. I mean, one of the things that you see throughout history is when people find themselves completely economically abandoned, as they were in Argentina right around 2000, you're right. And, and it's, it's, it's an old phrase. It's an old leftist phrase. People rediscover the virtues of mutual aid. They basically discover, well, the, the economy has failed me. It has abandoned me. And sometimes what you see are people engaging, you know, in desperate situations in sort of very sensible kinds of mutual economic aid activities and programs. And one of the things I have always argued is those things, they give the lie to the belief that people cannot manage their own economic affairs sensibly. That in those circumstances, when you see those kinds of things happening, they are basically an indication that, yes, we can go ahead and democratically plan, you know, how to take care of ourselves sensibly, efficiently, equitably, um, when, when, when the opportunity arises. Now, the problem is that those those activities usually take place in very, very difficult circumstances. And our problem is that those examples of better ways of doing things are 
quite often very, very short-lived. Um, Occupy was like that. Occupy basically said, wow, I mean, the system's abandoned us. Why can't we just sit down and do things ourselves? But yes, it has to be better organized and it has to be under circumstances that have some chance of success. Ordinary people are perfectly capable of managing their own economic affairs sensibly. I was I was thinking about all the people who are out of work right now and people who are really struggling and and so in in many ways you know we think well you know the pandemic has forced people to close businesses uh the pandemic has you know it's not you know it was something we weren't expecting but in some ways i think we should be expecting this right because we've done so much to compromise the health of the earth you know we poison our oceans we you know frack and mine the land we poison our rivers i mean we've been breathing contaminated air so it's not shocking news that our bodies can handle you know the the viruses and the things that are coming at us so i wonder if you could talk a little bit about the importance of our social movements taking a strong stance in not only rectifying um, the political system, but also the economic system that underpins all of this injustice. Because to me, it really, if you follow the money, you figure out where um, where the harm is coming from, right? We're funding, you know, oil extraction where we should be investing in other forms of energy. We're funding the constant mining of diamonds and gold when we know that those areas become ininhibitable, you know, and you're not going to be able to grow food after you've had a gold mine on the on the place. So all of this relationship, you know, our, our lives are really relational and we are interconnected, whether we like it or not, with nature. So how do we make that transition and do not hide behind things like flat taxes and more taxes will come your way if you don't do this? You know, because there's, there's such a scare tactics being used against people to turn people against their own interests for health and well-being. The environmental movement, um, if we go back 30 or 40 years, the environmental movement did a very poor job of recognizing that environmental policies had to be done in a way that wasn't an extra burden on ordinary people. And I think that the environmental movement has come a long way. And if you take a look at the Green New Deal, and you take a look at how it is that people are envisioning that, they're very clearly saying, we desperately have to get off fossil fuels. We have a decade to move our entire energy system, you know, off of fossil fuels, off of coal, off of oil, onto renewables. But we have to do this in a way where we, we don't raise the costs of heating your home you know, to people that have no way of paying those extra bills. And this is an area where I am very, very optimistic about what the Biden administration is putting together. Um, there were state governments where I live in Oregon and in Washington state and California that managed to put together legislative programs and put them in place, demonstrating that you can do both things at the same time. You can reduce your carbon emissions and you can do it in ways that do not negatively impact the living, you know, the, the, the living standards of ordinary people. And I think the Biden administration is 
well poised um, to take that program and make it very, very serious, um, which is exactly what we need. The truth of the matter is it turns out that we can get off of fossil fuels at the same time that we do not negatively impact the living standards of ordinary Americans, but in fact, raise those standards. Um, and I am actually somewhat optimistic that in that regard, we might see a real turning of the corner um, where the environmental movement, the labor movement, the sort of economic justice movement discover we're no longer at odds with one another. We're basically all together in a Green New Deal in a way that we're all very, very happy about. That, that I'm optimistic about at this point in time. It's been a wonderful um, whirlwind view of not just politics, but also how people are really the difference, right? And in your book, you write, unless the economy is of the people and by the people, it will never be for the people. So as we bring this interview to a close, um, tell me what inspired you to write that book and what is one message that you want our audience to take to heart as we move through this very muddy waters of transforming our society politically, economically, and the ecological uh, choices we are making? We are unfortunately far away from having a sensible, desirable economic system. And a sensible, economic, a sensible desirable economic system is one that is of the people and by the people, because otherwise it will never be for the people. I mean, that's, that's the big lesson to learn. Somebody else isn't going to do it you know, in the interests of the majority. They're going to do it in their own interests. We're not very close, at least in the United States, um, you know, to, to having such a system. Um, we've just narrowly avoided what was about to become real fascism, racist fascism, really brutal fascism in the United States. Twice in U.S. history has the U.S. Capitol building been ransacked once by British troops during 1814, during the War of 1812, and this past, this past month. And that was a fascist mob. We, we've dodged that bullet. It, it, it needs to be a wake-up call, a wake-up call that we have such serious problems that have created such divisions inside this country that unless government actually starts to solve some of those problems, then there'll be a second Trump who comes along who's a little more competent. Um, that's the lesson I think that we need to learn. In the meantime, is it still important to remind people of what a sensible, desirable economic system can and should be? I think so. But we're a long way from it. And we've got a tremendous number of economic reform battles um, and battles around things like Black Lives Matter. Um, again, something that has obviously never actually been resolved in the United States. And I guess we have to wage a lot of those things um, on our way to a more desirable economic system. Thank you again for being with us and for the beautiful gift of your book, Of the People, By the People, The Case for a Participatory Economy. My guest is Dr. Robin. It's good, being, it's good being with you, and, and hopefully we'll talk again sometime soon. Yes, thank you again. Bye-bye. We've come to the end of our show, Latin Waves. Latin Waves is an internationally syndicated weekly program made available through campus and community stations. 
and available out to the world at www.latinwavesmedia.com. Visit Latin Waves Media to hear previous shows to access resources or support our efforts towards social change via community project engagement. Thank you and bye for now.